Hi everyone, welcome back again to the Daily Gospel Exegesis podcast. As always, we're going to dive into the text of today's gospel and we're going to have a go at doing a verse-by-verse exegesis of the literal sense of scripture. What did it mean in its original context? And really trying to do a study of the text itself. So the first thing to say for today's episode is that today there is actually no mass. For Holy Saturday, there is no mass that falls within the normal daytime hours. So there is no mass during the day, but there is a vigil tonight on Holy Saturday evening. There is the Easter vigil. So this is the reading for the evening vigil mass today. And the gospel reading we're going to look at here is actually different for the daytime mass tomorrow. So let's look at the reading for the evening vigil mass tonight. So today's reading is Mark chapter 16 verses 1 to 7. When the Sabbath was over, Mary of Magdala, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices with which to go and anoint him. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb just as the sun was rising. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked, they could see that the stone, which was very big, had already been rolled back. On entering the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right-hand side, and they were struck with amazement. But he said to them, There is no need for alarm. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See, here is the place where they laid him. But you must go and tell his disciples and Peter, He is going before you to Galilee. It is there you will see him, just as he told you. So that's our reading for today. As always, we want to start by thinking about what's the context, what's happened just before this. So Jesus has just died on Good Friday and he's been buried. So the passion of Jesus has already happened. And we get to verse 1 of chapter 16. This is the final chapter in Mark's gospel. Verse 1, when the Sabbath was over. So here Mark tells us that it's after Saturday, 6 p.m. That's when the Sabbath would finish. And he's going to tell us about three women mentioned here who go to anoint Jesus at the tomb. These are the same women who were with him at the foot of the cross. So each of the gospel writers seems to focus on different women. It looks like there might be about five or six women who were with Jesus at the foot of the cross and also who anointed him early on Easter Sunday morning. But the the different gospel authors focus on different women, possibly because they know their audience is going to be more familiar with certain women. But in any case, the women we're going to see here, these are women who've probably known Jesus for quite a while. They would have been following him throughout most of his ministry. So the first woman mentioned here is Mary of Magdala. Of course, she's one of Jesus' closest female supporters. She's from Magdala, which is near the Sea of Galilee, and she's known in the Gospels as someone who Jesus delivered seven demons from. That's actually in chapter 16, verse 9. It actually says that. We don't know much more about her. She probably wasn't a prostitute and all these other legends about her are probably not true, but she was a follower of Jesus who originally had demons and Jesus cast them out of her. We also have here someone called Mary, the mother of James. There's a lot of scholarly discussion about this woman, Mary, the mother of James. 
which James is she the mother of? That's the question. Now, she's definitely not the mother of James and John, because that's going to be the next woman we look at. So, this Mary, the mother of James, must be the mother of James and Joseph. So, she's mentioned in chapter 15, verse 40, at the foot of the cross. She's specifically said to be Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And here, it's just shortened to Mary, the mother of James. So, apparently, James is the most important of the two brothers. Now, in all likelihood, this Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, is probably a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because if you go to chapter 6, verse 3 in Mark, where it has that scene where uh, the brothers of the Lord are asking about Jesus. Well, among those brothers of the Lord, it lists James and Joseph. Interestingly, they're called the brothers of the Lord. So, given that these brothers of the Lord, James and Joseph, are traveling with Mary, the mother of Jesus, it's safe to assume that this Mary, who is the mother of James and Joseph, is probably a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, uh, they're all part of the same bloodline, apparently. Mother uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, are related in some way. Now, to complicate it further, in John's Gospel, there's a woman at the foot of the cross in chapter 19, verse 25 of John's Gospel, who is called Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, in Mark's version, we don't have any woman called Mary, the wife of Clopas, but they're both given the name Mary, so it might be safe to assume that this Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, is Mary, the wife of Clopas. That would be one explanation, a common explanation that scholars take. They identify it as the same person. Now, if you go back to chapter 15, verse 40, where where it first discusses this Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, it specifically says that she's the mother of James the Lesser. Now, that's interesting because one of the 12 apostles is called James the Lesser. That might mean that this woman, Mary, the mother of James, is actually the mother of James the Lesser, the Apostle. She is the mother of one of the Apostles. That would be a very interesting implication there, wouldn't it? Because it would mean that one of the relatives of Jesus, James, is in fact one of the Apostles. And this is a theory that some Catholic scholars have gone for, that this James the Lesser is in fact a relative of Jesus who becomes an Apostle. I'm not convinced that's the best explanation, um, because if you go to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says that Jesus' brothers, and it lists James as one of them, consider him to be crazy, and they've come to stop him from doing ministry. It seems unlikely that James the Lesser, the Apostle, would be among these brothers of the Lord who are trying to stop Jesus. It's possible, but I just don't think it's likely. So, it's okay to retain an element of mystery here. There's clearly several Marys who are involved Um, at the crucifixion and the resurrection, and apparently there's quite a few people called James. Uh, But I'll just throw that out there if you're interested at all in this uh, discussion about who the brothers of the Lord are. And then we have another woman mentioned here by Mark. She's called Salome, and this is apparently the mother of James and John. If you go to Matthew 27, verse 56, the mother of James and John is called Salome. The other Gospels also tell us about some other women, including Joanna, but here we just have... uh, the two Marys plus Salome. So these women, they brought spices with which to go and anoint him. So they're anointing Jesus for his burial. Normally that would be done at the time of the burial, so it would be done on Good Friday, but on Good Friday, there hadn't been any time. Uh, Sabbath was approaching too quickly. It was basically almost sunset when Jesus was being buried, so the women could not do it 
as the, as the Sabbath approached, and they couldn't do it on the Sabbath either. So they come back early on the Sunday morning. That's their first opportunity to anoint Jesus. Now, it was not a pleasant task to anoint a decomposing body. It would actually be quite gross to do this. But these women are so devoted to Jesus that they decide to perform one last act of kindness for him, which is quite remarkable because all the men apparently have run away and they're not interested anymore, but the women are still serving Jesus. Verse 2, Mark says, Very early in the morning on the first day of the week. Now, the first day of the week, that was Sunday. And originally in the book of Genesis, the first day of the week was when God created light. So in a sense here, you can see that Easter Sunday is the beginning of a new creation. In fact, the catechism talks about this a lot. So the women go to the tomb as the sun was rising, or more literally, it says there, when the sun had risen. So probably about 6 a.m. on Sunday, the women go there. And if we have our dates correct, if you accept that Jesus was crucified in 33 AD, which is the majority opinion, that would make it Sunday, April 5th on 33 AD. Now, the mention of the sun rising here, that might be symbolic of the great defeat of death that Jesus has accomplished, which is interesting that Mark mentions the sun is rising. He doesn't have to do that. So maybe he's using it as a symbol for overcoming darkness and evil. Verse 3, they had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? So the women know that a big stone has been placed over Jesus' tomb after he was buried there. And they know that's going to be a dilemma because they want to go and anoint the body, but they have no idea how they're going to move the stone when they get there. They don't know how they can access the body. So they might be hoping that they get lucky and that someone else will be there that can help them move the stone. Verse 4, so they arrive, but when they looked, they could see that the stone, which was very big, had already been rolled back. So apparently someone has already rolled the stone away for them. Notice that Mark says the stone was very big. So you've often probably seen the pictures of this, where there's this big round stone in front of the doorway. And it probably was something like that. These were huge stones that would take several powerful men to move out of the way. So we have here a shortened version in Mark. According to the Gospel of Matthew, which is a bit more detailed here, at this point, what, the, what actually happens is the women experience an earthquake and they see an angel descend from heaven and that angel then rolls the stone away. And at that point, the guards pass out in fear. So all of this apparently happens. And then Mary Magdalene at that point runs back to tell Peter and John. So it might be safe to assume that Mary Magdalene is no longer with the women in this shortened version we have in Mark. Verse 5, on entering the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe. Now, the other Gospels make clear that this is an angel. In fact, there's two angels. But here, in typical Mark fashion, he only focuses on the one angel who speaks here. This is the focus. He's giving us the short, quick version. Now, angels are often depicted as young men in the Bible. If you look late in the Old Testament, 2 Maccabees chapter 3 and then Tobit chapter 5, some later books in the Old Testament, they both describe angels as young men. In fact, Acts chapter 1 does as well. So there is um, a biblical precedent for describing an angel as a young man. They often make themselves appear as young men. Often it can be easy for us to forget that the angels were involved in the resurrection. They certainly watched Jesus uh, resurrect and the angel was the one who rolled back the stone and maybe they even assisted with Jesus' own resurrection. So the angels were involved a lot on Easter Sunday. Notice that it says the angel has a white robe. 
Some scholars give this an interesting spiritual interpretation, or maybe a theological interpretation, which is interesting. They think maybe the white robe here links to earlier in Mark chapter 14, as Jesus uh, is being captured for his crucifixion. Remember, there's this young man who flees naked from Jesus' arrest. And so originally the young man is wearing apparently a white robe, but then he becomes naked. So some scholars see a theological significance here. So when the young man flees, he's kind of ashamed of Jesus. So the white robe maybe symbolizes the disciple's shame. He loses his white robe. But here we now have an angel who's wearing a white robe. So maybe the disciple's shame for fleeing has been reversed. And so the disciple's dignity has been restored by God. That's an interesting interpretation, isn't it? And so the angel is seated on the right-hand side. So here you can see the elements of eyewitness testimony coming through. Whoever told Mark this story, probably Peter actually, who might have heard it from the women, they're seeing an angel on the right-hand side. And the women were struck with amazement because they've seen an angel and also because Jesus' body is no longer there. They're amazed. Verse 6, But he said to them, There is no need for alarm. Or you can translate this, Do not be amazed. Now, that's a common greeting from angels in the Bible because often when angels show up, people are terrified. So he, he goes on, You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. So the angel tells them he knows why they're here. But then he goes on. He says, he has risen. He is not here. So this angel is actually the first person to proclaim he is risen. It comes from this angel. The verb here for he has risen suggests that God has done the raising. He's been risen by God. Remember what Jesus said on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that can be given different interpretations. But here you can see that that prayer has been answered. Jesus did not, God did not forsake Jesus. In fact, God raised him from the dead. The angel says to the women, see, here is the place where they laid him. So to prove that Jesus is not there, the angel gestures to where Jesus' body was laying. He's inviting the women to see for themselves, as the men will do later on. Verse 7, now the angel is going to give the women some instructions. You must go and tell his disciples and Peter. So the angel sends the women back to Jerusalem with a message for the apostles. The apostles as the church leaders must hear the good news. In a sense, the women here become apostles to the apostles. If you think about it, they're bringing the good news to the apostles, which is pretty remarkable since in the Jewish law at the time, women were not considered to be trustworthy witnesses. And in fact, if you look at Luke's um, account of the resurrection, the men don't trust the women when they tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead. Notice that the angel says, go to his disciples and Peter. So Peter is listed separately. Most scholars would say this is because Peter himself did not consider himself to be a disciple at this point because he'd been abandoned by Jesus before his death. Remember, the primary source for Mark's gospel is Peter himself. So maybe Peter here said to Mark at this point, write me as separate. Do not include me with the disciples. That's an interesting interpretation. Some other scholars think maybe Peter is being singled out here because he's the leader of the church already. So it's the disciples and Peter, with Peter being the leader of the church. In any case, the fact that Jesus wants Peter to hear the good news from the women indicates that, in a sense, Peter has already been forgiven. And that's going to be made formal in John chapter 21. The angel says to the women, He is going before you to Galilee. It is there you will see him just as he told you. 
So in chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus had told the apostles that they would see him again in Galilee. He predicted that. So the women now have to go back to the apostles and tell them it's going to happen. They're going to remind them of this prophecy. The angels want the disciples to get ready to return to Galilee because the majority of Jesus' appearances in the coming weeks would be there. In fact, the majority of uh, the last few weeks when Jesus is on earth is in Galilee. So the angel wants the apostles to get ready to go there. Now, some skeptics have seen a contradiction here with what comes later in the Gospel of Mark and also the other Gospels, because the angel here says to them, go to Galilee, that's where you'll see him. But of course, Jesus appears in Jerusalem uh, before he appears in Galilee. In fact, he appears on the very same day, on Easter Sunday, he appears in Jerusalem, not in Galilee. So some scholars have thought it strange that the women are told to tell the apostles, you will see him in Galilee, if in fact, they're actually going to see him in a matter of hours in Jerusalem. I think the key thing here is that the angels are telling, or the message the angels want the disciples to hear is that they need to get ready to return to to Galilee. Not that they need to go straight away, but they need to be prepared to return to Galilee, which they probably weren't planning to do anytime soon. At least some of them were not planning to go to Galilee. If you put the four Gospels together, what actually happens in the next week or so is The disciples stay one more week in Jerusalem after Easter Sunday, and they see him a few times in that week in Jerusalem, and then they go back to Galilee, where Jesus does the last parts of his ministry with the apostles. So we finish at verse 7. Now, verse 8 is not read in today's reading because there's a bit of a change of tone here, and we're going to look at it because I think it does finish off this section quite well. So verse 8 says... And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them. So the women were afraid of what they had seen, as you naturally would be. You've just seen an angel, and Jesus' body is missing. The words here suggest a holy awe. They're in awe of what they've seen. And then Mark says, They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So at least for a short while here, maybe for a couple of hours, the women were too afraid to speak to anyone. They don't know what to make of it. It's a stunning reversal of the messianic secret. Remember in most of Mark's gospel, uh, there's this thing called a messianic secret where when Jesus does stuff, he tells people, don't tell anyone. So Jesus gives orders to people not to tell others about his miracles. But then a lot of the time, the people ignore that instruction and they do go and spread the word. Well, here, the women are supposed to tell others about the miracle of the resurrection, but they ignore it. They don't do it. So there's an interesting reversal here. Now, if you look at the other Gospels and also the rest of the Gospel of Mark, at some point shortly after this, after the women leave bewildered, remember that Mary Magdalene has left them by this point, Jesus appears to the women. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 9 to 10, Jesus appears to these women who are heading back to Jerusalem. And also he appears to Mary Magdalene, apparently separately. If you look at John chapter 20, verse 11 to 17, Jesus has a separate appearance to her. So, Then Mary goes and tells the disciples what she's seen, and possibly this is the same time at which the other women come back with Mary Magdalene, and they also tell the disciples, because eventually the disciples do tell the disciples what they've seen. That's in the Gospel of Luke. So it's not always easy to see how the four Gospels fit together, but I think we can find a way to fit them together if we keep in mind the different Gospel authors are emphasising 
the points at which they find to be the most important on this day. They probably can't narrate every single movement of everyone that happens on this day because that would take too long and they have limited space to write with in their Gospels. So that is verses 1 to 8 of uh, chapter 16 of the Gospel of Mark. And a lot of early manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark finish there. That is the end of the Gospel of Mark in some of the earliest and most remark, uh, most reliable manuscripts we have. So the last, if you look at your Bible, though, you've probably got verses 9 to 20 of chapter 16. They do not appear in most early manuscripts of Mark. They're in some of them, but not most of the early ones. So for this reason, a lot of scholars, not all, but many scholars believe that the final verses in Mark, what we have as verses 9 to 20, they were maybe not in the original. They probably weren't written by Mark himself, but a later disciple of Mark. The evidence is not conclusive. Maybe it was written by Mark. We're not sure. Uh, That's an interesting scholarly discussion. But either way, the church has been very clear when it's defined what counts as scripture, that these last few verses of Mark do count as scripture. So verse verse 9 to 20, regardless of who wrote them, they are part of the canonical scriptures. So it's important that we do read the last part of Mark chapter 16. And you can hear that last section of Mark chapter 16 on Easter Saturday every year. That's when the next chunk of text can be heard, on Easter Saturday. So if you're listening to this podcast on Holy Saturday, next Saturday, it picks up from here. Let's now turn to the Catechism to see what it has to say about uh, this reading from Mark chapter 16. Paragraph 641, this is about the resurrection. Mary Magdalene and the holy women who came to finish anointing the body of Jesus which had been buried in haste because the Sabbath began on the evening of Good Friday, were the first to encounter the risen one. Thus, the women were the first messengers of Christ's resurrection for the apostles themselves. And then the paragraph goes on from there. So this is part of the catechism where it tells us what happened around Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Paragraph 2174, there's an interesting um, section here about the day of the resurrection being the day of the new creation. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Because it is the first day, the day of Christ's resurrection, it recalls the first creation. Because it is the eighth day following the Sabbath, it symbolizes the new creation ushered in by Christ's resurrection. For Christians, it has become the first of all days, the first of all feasts, the Lord's Day, Sunday. We all gather on the day of the sun, for it is the first day after the Jewish Sabbath, but also the first day when God, separating matter from darkness, made the world. And on this same day, Jesus Christ, our Saviour, rose from the dead. So you can hear in that catechism paragraph that even the early Christians gave uh, this idea of Jesus rising on from the dead on Sunday as an interesting interpretation in terms of it being a new creation that was there from the earliest days of Christianity. Paragraph 333, this is about Christ's relationship with the angels. It is the angels who evangelize by proclaiming the good news of Christ's incarnation and resurrection. And of course, we saw that in our reading today, when the angel in the tomb is the first one to say he is risen. Paragraph 652, this is about the significance of the resurrection. Christ's resurrection is the fulfillment of the promises both of the Old Testament and of Jesus himself during his earthly life. The phrase in accordance with the scriptures indicates that Christ's resurrection fulfilled these predictions. So we'll leave it there for today. I hope you've learned something new. Please continue to tell other people about the ministry. 
If you're enjoying what you're hearing, and if you're benefiting from it, you believe the ministry is worth supporting, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. There's a link for that in the show notes. You get access to all sorts of bonus episodes where we do a verse-by-verse exegesis of missing parts of the Gospels, which are never read at Mass. And also, there's some paragraph-by-paragraph commentary on the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So if you're interested in either of those, you can get access to those through the Patreon page. Thanks, and hopefully you'll tune in again tomorrow.